You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. All right, good evening, you guys. It's good to see you. I'm uh, going to take this off while I'm up here, and I'm going to ask a favor. Um, Eric, would you help me? I've got another document I want to pass out um, that I'll give you to hand out. So if you're joining with us on the live stream, I just passed out basically what's the equivalent of a syllabus for us that just gives you an idea of what's going to be talked about when. It also gives scripture readings. So if you would look at that in-house with this, if you want a copy of this and you're watching online, you can email our office at info at 12th.co. We'll be glad to send you that uh, in a digital format. Uh, if you'll notice on the first page of the syllabus, it talks about the description of what we're going to be doing, uh, how it's going to be involving lectures, classroom discussions, and um, assigned readings. Now, the readings I'd like for you to read if you're going to do that before you come in to be prepared, and you'll see that in a few minutes when we get to it. Then we'll have Q&A sessions, um, you know, towards the end of each week. And uh, the primary text we're going to use, of course, is an ESV study Bible I encourage you to have. If you don't have one, you can pick one up through Amazon. They're about $30. If for some reason you don't have the funds right now to do that, our church would be glad to try to help you out with that. Let us know. Just let me know, and I'll be glad to get you a copy. You can also get it as an app on your phone for about $15 or use it on your iPad once you have it on your phone or any kind of device that you use. Um, in addition to that, uh, let me go over a few things real quick. You see all these? This is what happens when you go to seminary. You stack up books. And um, I want you to know, I'm not asking you to do that, but I've got some readings I wanted you to look at as additional readings, possibly if you want to go that far. Uh, these are the two books that most Southern Baptist seminaries use for systematic theology, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about doctrines. And um, the one in, in this hand, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, is my favorite the reason is because, now I took classes under this one. This is Mildred Erickson. Um, Mildred Erickson comes to this from more of a British mindset of how to write, which means more philosophical in how he approaches things. Grudem's is the most replete of any modern systematic theology with scripture references. This guy, you, you, if you take all the time it takes to look up all the scriptures, it will take you an extra hour to read the lesson probably that's in here for that particular subject matter. You will not, we will not go through this entire book Okay, but I am giving you chapter references and page numbers to read if you do pick up Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. I think every Christian, if you want to go deeper in the Word, needs to get a good Systematic Theology to walk with you. Think of it like an encyclopedia. You say, I want to learn about demons. Well, you go to the chapter on demons and read about demons. You know, I want to learn about uh, what it means for the atonement. What does that mean that Christ died for us and how he atoned for our sins? Well, you go and you read several chapters on the atonement. There's a lot of these out there. Um, I'm going to suggest to you, and all the stuff I have in the syllabus will be things that I think are the best out there for the subject matter. Um, there's obviously things I haven't read that might be out there, um, but I'm going to try to point you to the things that are the most uh, scripture-laden and the most easily accessible for the subject matter. And um, it's not that you guys can't go further. I mean, any of you guys could pick up John Owen, a Puritan writer from the 1600s, and read him. I have trouble reading him when I read him. I love John Owen. I named one of my kids after him in a way, like Luke Owen. Uh, named him after John Owen. Um, but this particular book is its like having an encyclopedia of biblical doctrine on your shelf. It's worth the investment. Uh, you can buy it in num numerous ways. It just had a new edition come out. I like it. I would get the new edition if you have it. I downloaded it with my Logos software that I use. 
uh, it's a really good addition. But this is something you, you can reference the rest of your life. You don't have to sit down and read it all the way through. In fact, most people would call you a nerd, like me, if that's what you do. Okay, so um, you can if you like that stuff, but you don't have to. Pick it up and read what you want in there. What you'll notice, though, I have recommended texts as well. And um, some of the recommended ones are things like an NIV compact Bible commentary by John Selhammer. This little book that you can pick up for like 5 or $6, maybe even cheaper used, was one of the best purchases I made when I first became a believer. Uh, it gives a real concise definition about what's going on in each area of Scripture. I mean, the whole Bible is covered in this little guy. And um, Selhammer is one of the leading um, biblical theologians in the Southern Baptist Convention and it's conservative evangelicalism in general. It's a really good resource. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's also one of the experts in biblical theology, especially New Testament, wrote uh, this called Exegetical Fallacies, which means ways that people misinterpret Scripture. There's several ways people do that regularly, and he hits on a lot of that with this. If you want to go a little deeper, that's that. If you love the history, and these are all listed there under recommended text. If you love the history, uh, there's a two-volume set. This is the first volume called The Story of Christianity by Justo El Gonzalez, I think I said that right, and um, it's volume one, the early church to the dawn of the Reformation, and um, this is one of the most easily accessible history books that's very solid and just goes right through more like a novel than a lot of some of the boring textbooks I've had to read before in the past, so it's a really good read. Um, if you want to ask somebody about that, Tyler is a, is a historian. He got his undergrad in history, and uh, he loves this set of books for history as well. And Tyler helped me put this together for some of these book choices. Um, all right, I think that covers most of that. On the back, you'll find a page that gives you extra reading, two pages front and back, one page of a bunch of things there. I could select things for you if you're interested in reading further. But in between is a uh, list of dates and what we're going to be studying and the scripture verses to read ahead of time. I always encourage you, if you see where I say, like, for instance, um, uh, and next week, God's will, I say read Ephesians 1, 5, verse 9, and verse 11. Well, you should probably just read, like, chapter 1. You know what I mean? Just get the whole context in that. But I'm just pointing out where the references are. Then you'll notice that I also have, if you pick up Grudem's Systematic Theology, I've got what chapter and sometimes what page numbers you can read. Because sometimes the chapters are kind of lengthy. Um, and so I try to shorten that up for you when I can. Uh, again, this is all extra for you. There's no test at the end of the time. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. You can come in here and do nothing except sit in here and listen, and it's okay. So don't feel like you have to do anything. But uh, some people ask for more, and I wanted to provide that on the front end so that you're ready to go. I do think the more you do, the more you'll get out of it. Uh, that's usually how it goes. Um, in addition to that, you handed out the other stuff for me, right? And um, this is our lecture, my lecture notes. I don't want you spending time writing everything down, so I'm giving you my notes. You have the exact notes I'm going to be looking on when I talk to you. So I've got, if you notice, after the first page, I've got a few quotes to introduce us. Everything is covered in Scripture after that. Um, don't try to be flipping through your Bible if you can help it. You know, if you want to, you can, but this is, I'm going to go so fast through some of these. Uh, and again, if you're watching online with us, just make sure you let us know you want a copy of this, and we will get that to you digitally, uh, just like any of my sermon notes. We'll be glad to give you that ahead of time or behind the curve um, after the fact. It's a little warm in here. We turned up the heat for you. Is it comfortable for y'all? Yeah? All right, hang on. All right. You guys ready to get into the Trinity today? Yeah? Okay. 
All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. We're at 6.10. I'm going to try to give time for questions. But if you have a question, I want you just to raise your hand really big. I can't see really good with the lights in my face, so just raise your hand really big or say my name, and I'll stop, and I'll be glad to try to answer the question. Uh, I'm going to try to repeat the question for those that can't hear you, and uh, we can go forward. But if you all want to jot down a question, at the end, I'll take questions as well, okay? Any questions if we get going? No? Are you excited? I'm super excited. I thought for a while I wanted to be in the academy and I wanted to teach in systematic theology, especially the, the study of God proper, they call it, which means his attributes, the Trinity, those things. Um, and then I realized that um, that is not for me. This is more my calling. So, um, but I'm excited about being in this. So let me pray for us and we'll go forward from here. Father, I thank you for the fact that you reveal yourself to us in your scriptures. Thank you, Lord. You never have to do anything. and You don't have to show yourself to us. We should just see the creation, as your word tells us, and we should celebrate you and praise you and worship you. But, Lord, we have, we have sinful hearts, and we need your help. So we ask for your Holy Spirit now and as always to bring our minds to understanding your word and to help us to understand you rightly so we worship you for who you are. So Lord, help us today to do that, that we might honor you, enjoy you, and might glorify you. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't have anybody monitoring our live stream, so if anybody uh, wants to text me, let me know if we've got a problem. I'll be trying to keep up with that. Uh, let's look at it together then. So I want to start off with a couple of um, quotes for you about why should we even endeavor to study the difficult doctrine of the Trinity. We all know the Trinity is a, is a big thing. Let me just start off by saying everything we study about God is going to be overwhelmingly huge because he is an infinite God and we have finite minds trying to understand infinite things. And that's never going to be fully, we're never fully capable of doing that. But God has revealed himself in some ways to understand at least some, some amount of who he is. And we will spend the rest of eternity trying to take it in and never get there because he's always infinite and we're always finite, Right? But I wanted to, to kind of introduce, well, why do we need, even need to try to do this? And one quote that's not here is one that uh, Tozer said, um, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you worship God, basically. I'm going to paraphrase that, but that's basically what he said. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Because who you're worshiping in your mind, if it doesn't line up with the God of the Bible, you're worshiping a different God. And so our job as Christians is to continually to make sure that we are shifting our understanding of who God is so that we worship him rightly as he has told us to worship him. So all of life is a continuation of trying to do that better and better and better. And the Trinity in and of itself, while it's not a biblical term, it's not a word in the Bible, uh, is our best understanding of how to articulate what we know about who God is and how he's revealed himself in scripture in his identity. So let me give you a couple of quotes. There's a guy named Louis Burkhoff, a systematic theology professor, who wrote, and he says, The Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead, talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right, that the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence. In other words, that they're all one God and have the same essence and being, right? That's the difficulty. This unintelligible, it's essential in nature. He says, um, this is the difficulty which the church cannot remove, 
but only tried to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It's never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. And what he's talking about is there was some great devastating debates and fractures in the church back in the uh, third, fourth centuries, up to the fifth centuries, about the Trinity. And um, so they tried to define the Trinity to give us a kind of a doctrine of the atonement, but not to really explain it in its fullness, right? Um, Augustine, some people call him Augustine, he wrote a book on the Trinity, uh, De Trinitate, and he said, I would make this pious and safe agreement in the presence of our Lord God with all who read my writings, as well as in all other cases, as above all, in the case of those which inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. And I agree with him. This is some of the best thing we can do is try to understand who God is. Um, so the definition I want to give you as we get started that Wayne Grudem gives us, I think it's a very simple, you could choose just about any systematic theologian, any biblical theologian to give us a definition. I just, I like his because we're referencing his book. He says this, this is the definition of the Trinity he gives. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And that's where the confusion comes in, Right? So we're going to unpack that for the rest of our time together. Let me give you one more quote right now, and then we'll stop with quotes and just go to Scripture. But um, this is an example of somebody trying to explain the Trinity. This is Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers around 400 A.D., and he's trying to explain this in his book on the Trinity. And this is what he says. Read along with me if you have the notes. The true objects of enjoyment, then, are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are at the same time the Trinity, one being, supreme above all and common to all who enjoy him if he is an object and not rather the cause of all objects or indeed even if he is the cause of all for it is not easy to find a name that will suitably express so great excellence unless it is better to speak in this way and here he tries to define it the trinity one god of whom are all things through whom are all things in whom are all things Thus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and each of these by himself is God and at the same time they are all one God and each of them by himself is a complete substance and yet they are all one substance. The Father is not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son but the Father is only Father. The Son is only Son and the Holy Spirit is only Holy Spirit. To all three belong the same eternity, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. In the Father is unity, and the Son is equality, and the Holy Spirit, the harmony of unity and equality. And these three attributes are all one because of the Father, all equal because of the Son, and all harmonious because of the Holy Spirit. You see how complicated it gets just to talk about it? So what I'm going to do is something that was impactful for me when I first started to really get in depth in studying the Trinity. Uh, I had this illustration. It's not, it's not an um, illustration of trying to explain it. It's just trying to, to, to give a visual to what we just read. Okay, so I'm going to, to fill it in for us just briefly here. Okay. So if you put this in context, we're talking about all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. So they're all God. Put G there in the middle for that. So I'm going to put Father here, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the idea is all are God. So the Father is God, the Son 
is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But we have to make sure we understand that these are three different individuals, persons, they call it. That's the word used, persons. So the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So they are not the same persons, but together and even individually, they are fully God. This, again, this doesn't make it easy to understand. Hear me right. Okay, I don't understand all I'm even talking about right now. I'm just saying this is how the scriptures have identified who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I'll just quote one as we get going, that uh, Matthew 28, 19, uh, this is not on here in this order, uh, but one thing that kind of puts it in perspective for us, when you read through the scriptures, we believe, as this church, we believe in plenary verbal inspiration, which means we believe God spoke every word on purpose in the Bible, Okay. So that means if we believe that, then there's a reason for why some things are written a particular way. And when you read Matthew 28, 19, and Jesus is saying before he goes to the Father to prepare a place for us, he gives us a command to, to go, therefore, and make disciples. Remember that? Go and make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing in the name, singular, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because even Jesus refers to the Trinity as three persons in one singular God. And so while it's beyond our understanding, we're going to unpack this, it is, it is the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. So are you all ready to dive in heavy now? Yes? All right, good. We're going to break this down. Different than preaching, right? We're going to be in this like it's a lecture, like it's in a classroom setting, but with discussion as we go. So number one, first thing we need to understand is God exists eternally as three persons. You see in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see that terminology? After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish and see, and he goes on talking about it. Our is a plural term on purpose. So let us make man in our image. Some have tried to argue that that's the angels along with God, but the angels did not create. God created. So it's talking about God in himself, talking plurality. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So again, he's talking in plural, man has become like one of us. And so he talks about casting them out of the garden. If you look over at the next set, Isaiah 6.8, if you know this, this is the famous passage with Isaiah. Seeing God, he said, I, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? See it again? It's plural as well as singular at the same time. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see the differentiation there? In the beginning, it says God created. And then now it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Psalm 45, 6 through 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is unique. You probably didn't pick it up again. We're going to read it again in a second. It's because he's saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's talking about God the Father. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's talking about Jesus and referring to him as God, but also talking about the Father as God. This is about the Messiah to come. You read Psalm 45, 6, and 7. Again, this is your job to go back and read that in context to go a little deeper on it. But he's talking, talking about Jesus being God and the Father being God in the same moment. In fact, we see this quoted in Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom. Or Psalm 110.1 does the same thing. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the words interpreted there are shown as Jesus interprets them in Matthew twenty-two forty-one and on. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And that's where, like, this is another example, by the way, of where people say, well, Jesus never claims to be God. Right here, he claims to be God. Like, right here, he makes it very apparent in what he's saying. Only non-Jewish people would not understand he claims to be God over and over and over again. Just by saying, I am, in answer to questions, he's claiming to be God. That's why they want to kill him. Okay, when he says those things. Isaiah 48, 16, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret, from the time it came to be I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. You see the persons there eternally being revealed, God existing as three persons. How about this, Matthew 3, my favorite for this, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Godhead in action together. The Son being baptized, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the Father speaking over his Son audibly for people to hear. Right, the three persons in action. Matthew 28, 19, already covered that, baptizing in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's not just Jesus, it's also those that come after, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are differentiating between the persons of the Godhead. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, he says, according, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, the persons. I'm doing ad nauseum here. You know why? You can hear me talk and I can talk and fill you full of babble. Instead, I'm letting the word of God be the one proving the point. So I'm going ad nauseum. Stick with me. It's on purpose. That's why we're doing it. Jude 20, 22. Notice, if you don't know Jude well, Jude's one chapter. So it doesn't mean chapters 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So great examples here of what we're talking about. Um, but there is distinctions between the two. Again, remember, they're individual persons. They are not the same. There are distinctions between them. Here's, I'm going to be really short on these. I can give you more if you want. You can find them pretty easily, I believe. Distinction between the Son and the Father. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is where the Bible says the Son is not the Father, but they are the same God. Okay? It's a very clear directive push there. The distinction between the Holy Spirit and the Father. Okay? So we're saying that they are not the same. John 14, 26, where Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he distinguishes between the Father and the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit intercedes according to the will, and we oftentimes see in the Scriptures when it says of God, it's referring often to the Father. So he, the Holy Spirit intercedes to the will of the Father, Right? Also here, the distinction between the Holy Spirit and the Son. Uh, we see that in Romans uh, 8.27 again. Um, actually, I misprinted on that one. Maybe 26 and 27. But he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Nope, I totally dropped in a wrong passage there. I'll have to go back and find one for you and, and give that to you. So I apologize for that. Um, but there's, the descriptions are there, the differentiation. Even just when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him as he's being baptized. Differentiation. Their roles, we'll see in a minute in Ephesians 1, are differentiated. But these, the persons are differentiated, not just their roles. Okay, so what you have in systematic theology, they use the word like the, the economy, okay, the ontology. Ontology means your essence. So when we talk about you being alive, we're talking about body, soul, maybe your mind, spirit, how many different ways you want to cut it up right? That is your essence, who you are. Your role is what you do. So in my marriage, as an example, um, I don't have the role of giving birth in my marriage. My wife has had that role. I'm very thankful for that because I don't think I could do it. She's much braver and stronger than me. And so she's the one with that particular role. Even if I wanted that role, it doesn't change that I would have that role. However, just because I don't have that role doesn't mean I'm less valuable in essence, you see, there's a differentiation between who we are and what our roles are. Now, sometimes that gets blurred, but there's no difference in value or essence. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all say, they're all the same essence. Okay? They're all the same essence and all the same value, but they do have different roles that they play, that they submit to one another at various times, various ways. In fact, we won't get into it much today, but you'll see in the Scriptures that the Son says things like, I only do what I see the Father doing, Right? And, and that the, the Son proceeds from the Father. He does the will of the Father. He comes to do the Father's will. And the Holy Spirit is sent by the Son and by the Father. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is basically subservient to the Son and to the Father. Now, if my wife decides to be um, submissive to me in some way, that doesn't mean she's of less value or essence. It just means she's deciding to carry on a particular role. Just like if I submit to someone else's authority, I'm not saying I'm less valuable than them. I'm just saying, or that I have less value or less essence than them or different in value or essence. I'm only saying that I am actually doing a, a, a job of serving them because I love them. That's what we see here, an economy of love, an action, the economy part of love, our roles. Okay, so we're talking about two different things and we switch the gears here. And now before we even get further into that, let me say this. There are some people that like to talk about the Holy Spirit as being a power. If you're a Star Wars fan, it's easy to relate to that. The Force, right? May the Force be with you. Except in Star Wars, the Force is not evil or good. It's just the force of nature that's around us, right? The Holy Spirit is not just a power or a force. It's a person. He is a person. He's referred to in that way. Some translations, 
the TNIV, the new NIV, okay, the, 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 the T stands for, uh, the NIV that's the new one, TNIV, has changed and neutered the Holy Spirit. Every time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it's me- the Spirit is, he is mentioned as an it and not as he when it's referred to in the scriptures as he. The Holy Spirit is a he. That's how he's referred to. And you may say, well, it doesn't show that always. Real quick, so in the English language, we don't show gender according to how we write words. But in other languages, often they do. If you read French or, or Greek, okay, we're talking about Greek in a lot of the New Testament, Hebrew, they show gender associated with their words based off the way the words put together with the letters of language. And you can see that the Holy Spirit is referred to as masculine in the Bible. And so even when it's not referred to as he, he is still masculine in the way it's written. Now, why is it that way? I don't know. I'm just explaining what the Bible shows us, right? Let me give you why this would be weird, by the way. Um, like in Romans 8, 26, if it was just that the Holy Spirit was power, it would not make sense to say it in the Scriptures. Here's why. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts uh, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's insert the word power there. Um, likewise, the power helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the power himself intercedes for us. That doesn't make sense. Why would it use the word himself? Do you understand? You start inserting power everywhere you see the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work. Look at Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the power of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the power of God? It doesn't make sense at all. Instead, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which is what it says here. So the Holy Spirit is not just a force or power. We could do that over and over again. There's places in Scripture where it also says, the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That'd be like saying, in the power of the power. It just doesn't make any sense why there would be a differentiation in language if it just was a power. It's a person. He is a person. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm going really fast here, so let me pause for a second. Do we have any questions yet as you've been drinking from the fire hose of Scripture? Any? Okay, I'm going to diatribe for a second. I get in trouble for this. Uh, anybody ever seen UHF, TV show UHF with Weird Al Yankovic? Anybody? Please raise your hand. A couple of people. I'm not saying you should watch it because I don't remember if there's things in it. I watched it first when I was very young. But in that, there's a scene where they're doing this game show, and they basically, if you win in the game show, the kids get to a prize, and this prize is drinking from the fire hose. And so every time I get up here and do something like this, and I'm reading scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, I recognize that what I'm really doing is sitting you on a chair with wheels, and I'm hitting you with the fire hose, which would knock you backwards several feet, right? So I understand if you need to take a second, take it in, and come back and ask a question, it's okay. Make a note, raise your hand, we'll stop, and we'll backtrack. Good? All right. Yeah, and the more interaction you give me, the better I know where I am. So it's hard with masks on, so you have to give extra nod, okay? All right, here we go. Um, let's look at this. Not only is that the case, that all three persons, right, are eternally three persons. God eternally exists as three persons. Um, but all three persons are equal in essence and value, but distinct in their roles. So in their economy, they have distinct roles. Ephesians 1, it's kind of long. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he's he's done that. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Look what he does. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God is choosing before the foundation of the world. That's an act of the Father. It goes on. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So all this stuff that happened before we were ever even born, that's God the Father willing it to happen. Choosing, electing, predestining, all those kind of terminologies we see here. Then we see here in verse 6, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Another word for Jesus. Look at this. In him, in the beloved, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That's how we know it's Jesus. He's the one that died on the cross, right? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. God's doing this according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Okay? So what we see there is different roles. God's role in this, what we see in this economy of description here, is God is choosing beforehand, he's predestining in love for adoption, and he's setting it forth in his will for Christ to come, and then Christ is the one who redeemed us on the cross with his death. He spilled his blood out for us. You see? A different role. Now, it goes on. See, when he lavished upon us all wisdom, it's at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is God the Father to unite all things in him, in Jesus. So in Jesus, all things are united. He set forth for this to happen. He decreed it, the Father did, things in heaven and things on earth to be united in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. So it's through him that we obtain the inheritance. It was decreed by the Father that we would obtain it. And now through Jesus, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, he's the source of every reason why it happened this way. It's all according to the Father's will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's the reason. So that we would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's, the, that's Jesus, in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's a role of the Holy Spirit. He seals you, right? Who is the guarantee, so he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Father decrees, the Son redeems, okay? The Father elects, he decrees, he, he makes things move in a direction for it to happen, and for adoption for us, the Son redeems us, actually does the work on the cross, and the Holy Spirit is the one who then guarantees that and seals us for the day of redemption. Now, in our salvation, what happens? We hear the gospel, we receive faith and repent and believe in the same moment. This all happens, just done. But before time began, God had already been working in it. The Son redeemed us 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit, in that moment, he seals you for the day of redemption. He puts his mark on you and guarantees your mind, right? As we talk about it, you grew up maybe hearing the Holy Spirit has to move upon you and, and has to, to bring you, woo you to the Lord, and you repent and believe in Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit sealing you for the day of redemption, guaranteeing you're his. So this is the economy of the Trinity at work, different roles, all the same value, all three God, okay? All three God, individual distinct persons in role, but the same essence. They're not the same persons, but they are all three God, all right? It's a lot to take in. You still good? All right, let's go. Next, each person of the Trinity is fully God. Now, here's where we get into the trouble. This is the trouble. The trouble today is not 
The trouble back a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, was that people didn't believe Jesus was a man. That's the trouble. Reconciling his manness, his fully being man, with him being fully deity. That wasn't the problem. The church, the church has a problem in the church back then. Today, the problem is people don't want to believe he's fully God. That's the trouble we get into mostly in our current context. So I'm not going to get into sh- to proving to you that God the Father is fully God because there's not many people that argue that. You know what I mean? Like when you read the Bible, it's just the Father, the Father, Father, God, God, God. It's easy. It's all over the place. But when we get to Jesus, that's where the trouble is. In fact, I would argue that if you go to most people and talk about God, they don't have a problem with it, especially in the South. But as soon as you mention Jesus, that's where the problem comes out. That's where the trouble starts. Okay, so how do we know Jesus is fully God? These scriptures will help us. Again, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Logos is the word there, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And it goes on down until you get in the prologue there to where you see that it says that he tabernacled among us, basically, that he came and dwelt among us, and that he is the only one we've seen, really, face-to-face, who is God, is Jesus, right? It's John's prologue introducing it. And at the end of John, we see something similar. Look at this in verse, chapter 20, verse 28 and on. Thomas answered him. This is when Thomas was doubting. If I see his hands and his feet and the nails places in his hands and feet, I'll believe, right? That's what Thomas says. That's me doubting Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God. When he sees him and he sees it there, he didn't have to touch it. He just says, my Lord and my God. He calls him God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who, do, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus is saying to Thomas, he doesn't, he doesn't correct him, my Lord and my God. He says, oh, now you believe, right? And then John, right after that, ends his letter by going, this is why I wrote this to you, so you would know that Jesus is God. That's, all, that's the whole purpose. You want to know why John wrote what he wrote? Know that, and now go read John again and understand why he says everything he says, to prove that point. All right, Hebrews 1.8. But, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, there he is referenced again, right? Of your throne, he says, O God, that is you. We've already even looked at that before. Romans 9.5. To them belong the patriarch, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is considered God. Right, that he is God. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit also is fully God. I'm going to give you one reference. It's good enough. I love this story. It's very feared, stilling in my heart. Acts 5, 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, remember Ananias, remember these guys, what they did? Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, however you want to say it, she and he decided to sell some property and come and give it, but not give all the money. But they said it was all the money. And when they said it was all the money, the Holy Spirit killed them because they lied to him. <laughs> right? This is, what it, this is the story of that. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So he says you lied to the Holy Spirit and says you've lied to God in the same conversation. So he's equating God and the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of other places. I'm just giving you one example here, mainly for time's sake. 
Look at this here. Um, all three persons are also eternal. I'm giving you a quote here. Uh, we could go again ad nauseum on scripture. I'm going to give you a break from that for a second. This is a, uh, it's in Wayne Grudem's book. It's, it's a letter that Bruce Ware, who's a really well-known systematic theologian, wrote to Wayne Grudem, an email or a letter, personal email, I think it says here. And this is how he processed it as you just look at the simplicity of thought of what the scripture does by saying God is the Father and Jesus is the Son. He said, just logically even. We, let's just, we've seen a lot of scriptures. Let's think logically for a second. He says this, since the Father is really Father, he really is. Since the Father is really Father, as opposed to being Father nominally or in name only. And since the Father is eternal Father, then it follows that he must really have a son. If a man is called a father, what do you imply? Well, he's got a son or a daughter, right? He's not called Father if he has no kids. So that's what he's saying here. He must really have a son who is genuinely from him. Otherwise, he isn't really Father. And that this son from him must likewise be eternally from him. Otherwise, he is an eternal father. He'd be eternal God who became a father. So this idea is just trying to prove the point, just in the language used, that if God is the eternal father, Jesus is the eternal son, that's necessity there. And if they've all been together and they've always been there, like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, or if we see in Genesis 1 where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, then we just know that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son have always been together. And everything points to that through everything. We see even the logic of the Scriptures and how it's written. All right. Here's a little warning. You're not going to see analogies. This is an illustration about what we're talking about. This is a, this is a way to visually show what language is doing for us, right? But I'm not going to give you analogies because analogies always fail. If people give an analogy of the Trinity, I get really nervous because it always fails. Here's a good quote from Louis Burkhoff about that. He says, it's especially when we reflect on the relation of the three persons to the divine essence that all analogies fail us and we become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. It is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. So can somebody volunteer and just tell me, the basis of one analogy you've heard. Just tell me, and I'll, I'll know it probably as soon as you start talking about it, but what's one analogy you've heard to describe the Trinity? Nobody wants to do it, you know I'm going to rip it apart, but it's okay. I'm just asking, we've all heard them. What's one you've heard? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, people use that all the time. The different forms of water. So they'll say that, that the Holy Spirit is like water vapor, right, evaporated water, that the Father is like a body of water, okay, and that ice is like the sun. I said, well, they're all water. So it fails miserably because they're not all the same in the same moment at the same time of the same essence. They're different. Okay, one's ice, one's water, and one is vapor. They also can't all be in the same place at the same time. And you're not talking about all water at once being the same. We're talking about these three are always fully God in who they are, but they're always completely different in personhood. So we, we just, we cannot wrap our mind around it. It's a great try of an illustration. Augustine tries to give one. A lot of people try to give one over the ages. They all fall short. There's no way to rightly, they eventually, it starts off good. I've heard people use like an apple. They'll say there's the core, there's the meat of the apple and the peel. But the peel is not an apple. You understand what I'm saying? It, it, it's not, a, it, the core is not an apple. You have to have all those together to be an apple. But Jesus is fully God. And the Father is fully God individually. And together they're fully God. 
So it, it still falls apart as you try to describe it. That's why really the better way for us to go about this is to simply do this. My brain is not big enough to understand God, and that's good. Because if I can fully comprehend the God of the universe, and I'm a sinner who needs salvation, then I have a little God. We don't really, at the base level, we want a God who's way beyond us and greater than us and who's really in control of all things. If I can fully understand him, then I'm not, he's not in control of all things. There's no way. It's just not possible. So what we can do is understand the little bits he gives us and try to put that in categories. Sometimes in Scripture, we see things that look like they are, are contradictions. Okay? We'll see something saying something about God and something else saying something about God, and we say, that can't work together. Well, no, it does, because our minds fold in at some point, and we can't reconcile the two. It's a contradiction, you think, but really it's a paradox. Our language fails us because we're finite people with finite language, and we can't understand everything about who God is. But it works. If you're infinite and you can see it and you are that way, it works, but we can't understand it. There's a great little book out there that's not a Christian book. It's about, I can't remember the name of it. I used to even own it, probably do digitally. It's a, um, it's a book about two-dimensional beings. Okay, they only live in the this way and this way, and they have intersection with the three-dimensional beings through the plane of their life. Now, all they see is one slice of that. And he's trying to communicate to them about what it is to be three-dimensional. And it's almost impossible to do so. And so to try to understand us as finite beings, an infinite God is beyond us. And it's better just to say, hey, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about God. I'm not going to try to give you a picture that makes it better unless I explain how the picture fails. Do we understand? Because then we can really set ourselves up for failure on that. Here's why. Let's let's get into this. Just one more thing before we get there. There really is only one God. This is the most confusing part of it to me. I find it easy to believe the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all persons that are God, fully God. I find it hard to then reconcile that with the idea that there is one God. Okay, that, that's the part that's hard, is reconciling those truths. That's the heart, the part where my brain just kind of explodes. And so let's see some scriptures that do just prove it to us. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's one. 1 Kings 8, 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other, singular, there is no other. 1 Timothy 2, 5, I'm skipping Isaiah there just for time. You can go back. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom, there are, we, whom are all things and through whom we exist. So see, even talking about one God we still get this confusion because our brains can't really wrap around it. Well, let's talk real quick, try to as brief as I can about the errors that happen from the Trinity. Now, I wish we, we can do a whole series just on the errors because that's where we get cults. Okay, so I'm going to talk about some errors and some belief systems that follow these things. So the first one is modalism. And just, I'll put it simple. Um, for this one, this claims that there's one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. So think of it like this. One God with three faces. If you used to like He-Man, when I was growing up, He-Man was a thing. And uh, He-Man had this one like character that when you hit the head, the face turned. Okay, that's modalism. There's a lot of problems with modalism, though. But they, they say that this is where it comes from, like John 10, 30, and I and the Father are one. So they're like, well, they must be one. Really, it's just one God, one person. 
John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? They take that and go, look, there's only one person, really. Well, no, there's not one person revealing himself in three ways. Because if so, here's the problems, as you see here, that denies that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct individuals. It makes any conversation or actions between persons of the Trinity a charade or an illusion. So when Jesus is baptized, that means he's putting on a show for us. It's not really how God is. He's just acting like he's a certain way. That the Son's being baptized, the Spirit is descending, and the Father is speaking over him. That's not really true. That's just God manifesting himself in three ways. He's kind of confusing us. Why would he do that? He's not a God of confusion, right? Also, it destroys the doctrine of the atonement. If the Son bore the wrath of the Father, who had to be satisfied... It only works if there's a satisfying sacrifice for the wrath of the Father. If the Father then takes that wrath on himself, it doesn't work. Okay, it doesn't make sense. It totally destroys the doctrine of the atonement. Now, there is a group of people, I wouldn't call them a cult, but I would say that because they believe this, they lean into cult world. Um, and hear me right, I'm calling out a name here, but United Pentecostal Church International, UPCI. I'm not saying all Pentecostals, I'm saying United Pentecostal Church International. They hold to modalism. It's one of their doctrinal statements pieces. There's other guys like T.D. Jakes, who says he's not a modalist, but preaches modalism. Um, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, modalists. I know you don't want to hear that, but that's, that, that's what they hold to, modalists. They're the ones that actually wrote one of the songs that we have sung before in here, a Revelation song. Um, but they, they hold to modalism. So these, this is a dangerous thing. Uh, God is three persons, all fully God. He's one God. How do I get it? I don't get it, but it's the truth of the scriptures. Second error, Arianism. Arianism, that's denying the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. They say that Jesus is a demigod, that he was created later. Okay? But he's still created before everything else. He's still above everything else, but he's created later. Um, Arius was a guy that died in the 300s A.D., his views were condemned by the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. He taught that God the Son was at one point created by God the Father and that before that time the Son did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Son is a demigod who is greater than all the rest of creation, but not equal to the Father. Colossians 1.15, they use this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you understand anything about Hebraic way of thinking, when they use the word firstborn, they're not talking about here he was the first made. What they mean is he is the primary import. He is the one who's the most important, the one that deserves all of the Father's, uh, like, like if you're the, the firstborn means you have all the accolades of the Father. It's all yours. Back in that day, the firstborn son received all the inheritance. Okay? So this would be saying the firstborn being the ultimate of the Father. That's what he's talking about there. Um, we see that because we try to reconcile it with the rest of Scripture. It, 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 there's no other way to interpret that. Okay? John 1.14 and John 3.16, in your King James Version, it would say the only begotten son. That word begotten is actually, I've got it here in the Greek for you. There's your Greek lesson for the day. Um, uh, I'm not going to try to say it because it's been a long time. Monoge, I mean, monogenes uh, is the word pertaining to what is unique. That's where it translates begotten in the King James. You notice in the ESV it's not that way. It says his only son. Here's a definition that most uh, conservative uh, Bible dictionaries will help you to understand it. it says that word means pertaining to what is unique in the sense of being the only one of the same kind or class unique only so it doesn't mean begotten in the sense that he gave birth or made it means like of the same essence uniquely the same right 
All right, some sub-things about Arianism. Uh, subordinationism, the belief that the Son was eternal and divine, but still not equal to the Father in being or attributes. Um, that's what some people hold to. Adoptionism, that's where they believe that Jesus was a man, normal, until God put his spirit upon him and basically kind of adopted him in and conferred on him supernatural powers at that point. They don't hold Christ as eternal, but simply as an exalted man. Okay, that's adoptionism. Uh, some other people that people listen to a lot, I can, you know, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for all these names. Um, who's, the, uh, who's the lady that uh, preaches that um, has a book about the battle of the mind? Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer has preached adoptionism. I've watched her preach it. Okay, so th- this is very unbiblical. That's why even if somebody says 90% great things, or 99% great things, they say one thing against these beliefs of the Trinity, everything else is in jeopardy. Do you understand that it's, it's a dangerous situation? Now, she may have a lot of good things to say about a lot of different things, but adoptionism can never be held to biblically and be orthodox. It's not there. Tritheism. Uh, Mormonism teaches this. In fact, they teach polytheism, but we'll start off with tritheism. That means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three separate gods. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, Mormonism actually is a polytheistic religion because uh, while they say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three different gods, that's what the Mormonism says, it also says that those that this father was begat by another father and mother who were deity, and they had a bunch of kids, and one of those kids became the god over our planet. And then he married Mary or whatever and has another kid and a bunch of other kids. In fact, they also say that Satan and, and Jesus are, are spirit brothers. Okay, so they, they, that's really polytheistic, but they treat it as in every... In fact, all of us, if we were Mormons, would have the potential to become gods ourselves in their view of what it is like theologically. So they're nowhere close. They're not, a, they're, not a, they're not another Christian group. They're outside of Orthodox Christian teaching. They believe more in tritheism than, than the rest. All right, lastly, why is this doctrine of the Trinity so important? Because the atonement is at stake. The atonement, that Jesus died for our sins. If Jesus is not fully God, then he cannot die for the sins of the world. He can only die for his own sins or for the sins of another. He has to be worth more than all of creation combined. He has to be God. And can anyone bear the wrath of God to complete satisfaction for the sins of the world and then rise again other than God himself? The answer is no. God the Father must dole out all of his wrath. The only one that can survive that is God himself. A lesser created being, even if it was the first created being, even if it was a demigod, would not be able to survive the full wrath of God, all the wrath poured out for all eternity, but instead onto one God. It has to be a full God, and Jesus is a full God for that reason. Otherwise, the atonement is destroyed. Secondly, how can anyone other than God respond to and answer all the prayers raised in his name? If Jesus is not fully God, there's no way that Jesus can then hear all of our prayers and and advocate for all of us and respond for all of us and care for all of us, why would we say it in the name of Jesus and not just in the Father? Why would he articulate to say it in the name of Jesus? There would be a lesser. All of the Old Testament, the reason why God destroyed so many people in the Old Testament is they stole his glory. (laughs) The reason why we're condemned if we're not in Christ is because we steal his glory. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And so to take and give his glory to another that is not fully God would be, again, wrong. And so God, the Son, has to be fully God as well. 
And thirdly, if Jesus was created, then a creature, I just said it, not the creator, gets all the glory. Look at what happens. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's his, his calling against the, the, those in Rome. It says, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Listen, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So if Jesus is the first created thing, he's still a creature. And if we give glory to him that belongs to God the Father, then we should be destroyed and condemned according to God's own word. Do you understand? So he has to be fully God. That's just three of the many examples of why this is so important. And I'll just sum it up with Herman Bovink, who says this about this. He says, In the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error, talking about theological error, results from or upon deeper reflection can be traced back to a wrong view of this doctrine. That is where we are. So this, this is the problem. The Trinity has to be there. If it's not this way, we give up Christianity. It's a serious, serious truth. It's not something we can all understand, but it's something we should strive to understand as best we can and then to order our worship around that. And uh, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out, just like everybody else has in history. So, all right. Now I'll turn the water hose off. And now we're already hitting our time, but I'm going to let it go for a minute. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask at this point? I won't say your name for those on live stream. I won't say your name if you ask a question. All right. This is the biggest for the next little while. We're going to slow it down a little bit next week. We get to the will of God. I do encourage you to pick up your copy of Systematic Theology. It will challenge you. It'll be very good. One of the things I had to do through seminary was write a half-page synopsis of what I read on things uh, for that book. So if you pick it up and read the pages associated and can do that, that would be really helpful for you. If you, if you don't do that, at least, and this would be primary, at least read the Scripture passages associated with it and get ready for that, and we will embark to dissect it. Next week, we'll have a lot more discussion time. This week, it's a huge thing. If you come back in next week and have some questions, I'll try to address them even about the Trinity, okay? We don't have to wait that long. Let me know ahead of time. Email me, thomasw at 12th.co, uh, or call us here. If you've got my number, call me. You can get that from the office. I'll be glad to answer any questions. Now, can I pray for us then right now? Let me do that. Father, I thank you so very much that you are a holy God who has revealed yourself in your scriptures to us. Thank you. And thank you, God, for sending us Jesus, your one and only Son, who died for us on the cross, who redeemed us by his blood spilled for us, who became fully man as well as being fully God. And I thank you, Father, for sending the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to dwell in us, to seal us for the day of redemption when you send Jesus back to take us home. Thank you, Lord. We don't understand you fully, but we love you. We don't get all of this in our mind, but we trust you. And Lord, we ask now that you help us to worship you rightly and give you glory so that we might enjoy you fully. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet. And we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.